The scripture reading this evening comes from the book of Ecclesiastes. And I want to read from chapter 3, beginning in verse 9. What does the worker gain from his toil? I have seen the burden God has laid on men. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the hearts of men, yet they cannot fathom what God has done from the beginning to the end. To end. I know that there is nothing better for men than to be happy and to do good while they live, that every man may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all his toil. This is the gift of God. I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. God does it so men will revere him. Whatever is has already been and whatever will be has been before. And God will call the past to account. May God bless the reading of his word tonight. On Highway 60, south and west of Charleston, West Virginia, is the town of Anstead, West Virginia and Hawk's Nest State Park. When you drive into the park, you come into a playground with swings and slides, a picnic area with covered pavilions, and it's all wooded, and it's very beautiful. Um, Just beyond the picnic area, there is a parking place, and you can walk down from there to a stone overlook, an observation deck. And when you come out onto the deck, what you see takes away your breath because you're looking out over a valley. And across the valley, you can see the mountains that are on the other side. Look to the right, and you see more mountains. Look to the left, and you see more mountains. Look up and over you, you see endless mountains disappearing into the distance as far as you can see. But as high up as Hawk's Nest is, And for all that you can see, there is no place that you can stand and see all the mountains of West Virginia or see all of the mountains of the Appalachians. Not at that point or at any point. In fact, what we can see from any one overlook or any one point is really a very small portion of the mountains. This description provides a helpful comparison that we can make to the way we think about God. We can take in the lessons about God that creation can teach us. Paul in Romans 1 verse 18 following tells us that creation reveals some things about God's intelligence and his power and his provision. And we can study statements in scripture that God makes that reveal himself such as Exodus 34, verse 6 and 7. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. We can study the images and the figures of God that are used to reveal himself to us in Scripture. And while each of those reveal truth to us about God and help us understanding, none of them alone gives us a complete picture of God. God is just too large, too great, for our infinite minds to take in completely. We can never see all of God. I can't help but think that 
But that, that in part, that is why God has revealed us to himself in so many ways. He's revealed himself to us in terms of being the creator, being father, being savior, husband, mother, warrior, king, judge, shepherd, farmer, vine dresser, and so many more. All of those tell us something about God. They reveal a little bit more to us about God. I think we sometimes fall into a trap of having just one view of God to the exclusion of the others. Perhaps our favorite way of thinking about God is to think of him as a loving father. And the Bible certainly teaches us that he is that. He's a father whose mercy and grace uphold us. And he loves us as his children. But there are others that don't often inform our understanding of God. We don't think a lot about God as a farmer or as a vine dresser. But Jesus says he is in John 15. We don't think of him as a warrior. There is a fierce picture of God in Psalm 60, in Psalm 50 rather. And I'm sure we don't think of him as a bird, protecting its young with its wings. But in Psalm 91 and verse 4, there is mention of God's feathers. How does that fit in our picture of God? But he is revealed in those images as well as a loving father, and they help us to understand more about God. Well, Ecclesiastes 3, verse 1 through 15, gives us a vision of God that we may not think about very often. In this passage, God's eternal nature is the concern and how much God is beyond us. Beyond us, and yet at the same time so very close. Ecclesiastes 3, 1 through 15 may make us feel small and insignificant, and that's okay. It is appropriate that we sometimes feel small and insignificant before God. Our passage begins with a poem about God and about human life in verses 1 through 8. And the poem begins with the declaration in verse 1. There is a time for everything and a season for every activity under heaven. We might be tempted to think that the writer who calls himself the preacher is simply making an observation about the ebb and flow of life and how things happen in life. But while the preacher observes human activity, his focus is much more on God. The context insists that God has set the times for everything. He has assigned the seasons and determined the passage of time, and they are his times. We might be surprised, we might wonder how it got to be January 4th, 2014. But for all that we're amazed, time is moving forward and at exactly the pace that God determined for it. The preacher wants us to appreciate that God is sovereign. Everything is under his rule. He is king. He is Lord. To borrow a phrase from our Jewish friends, he is master of the universe. Blessed be he. As such, he is aware that lilies need to be fed, need to be clothed and sparrows need to be fed. And with great faithfulness, he tends to both. So life as God created it has times and seasons. It is also implied in this poem that there is a mystery about these times and seasons. 
One writer captures the mystery very well when he says, we all ask ourselves, who would have ever thought of the time when I would say this or that I would do that? And each of us can think of our own lives and fill in the blank. Perhaps you thought of a time, can think of a time that you thought would never come when you would sound like your father or mother. But you catch yourself, don't you? Saying exactly what they used to say. Doing exactly what they used to do. We don't comprehend the changes of the seasons. We can count the days to fall and to winter and to spring and to summer. And we may know some of the mechanics of that change, the physical processes. But still there is a mystery. A mystery that is beyond us. A mystery as to how things came to be this way. And so too, there is a mystery about the times and the seasons of life. We can stand on the top of the mountain, as surely we do with Ecclesiastes 3, 1 through 15, but our finite minds cannot take it all in. So the poem gives us a series of 14 contrasts in verses 2 through 8, a series of events and activities that are opposites, that encompass all of life. There is a time to be born and a time to die. There are times in individual life and times in society. There are times for actions that are destructive. There are times for actions that are constructive. There is a time for separation and a time for union and coming together. The preacher is saying the joys and the sorrows of life are experienced in those contrasts. Life moves between those points. And it does so in the pattern and the flow that God himself has determined. And it is beyond us to comprehend God's plan. We experience these times. They come to our lives. But we do very little to control them. Another writer makes the point that these are God's times, not ours. They happen to us. But they are under divine control, not human control. God is sovereign over everything, including the times and the seasons. And so it is that there is a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to scatter stones and a time to gather them. A time to embrace and a time to refrain. A time to search and a time to give up. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear and a time to mend. A time to be silent and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. But what are we to make of all of that? What does it tell us? What does it mean to us? Well, the preacher explains that in verses 9 through 11. The preacher asks, what does the worker gain from his toil? As we pass through the times and the seasons of life, what value is there in it? The preacher says that that he's looked at human life and he has seen the burden that God has put on people. And the burden that he's speaking of, the challenge that he speaks of for us is this. Where do we find gain? Where do we find value? Where do we find worth? 
as we pass through the life's times and seasons. If we don't determine them and if we don't control them, if we're something like a ping pong ball being hit from one side to the other, what is the point? What does it mean? We might be tempted, as many students of Ecclesiastes are tempted, to say the writer is telling us there is no point. There is no value. There is nothing at all to be gained. And in the preacher's word, everything is vain and empty. Everything is a chasing after the wind. But look at our passage. Look at the end of verses 1 through 8. Look at 9 through 15. And what you'll see is his customary judgment of vanity, vanity, all is vanity and chasing after the wind isn't applied here. It doesn't appear at the end of the contrast in verse 8. And it's not part of what he says in verse 9 through 15. Instead, he insists that God has made everything beautiful in its time. The word beauty here isn't the word that we think of aesthetically, that something is attractive. But it has more here to do with with good. In Genesis 1, God talks about coming to the end of the day and he sees that the day's creation is good. And it's a similar idea here. It's appropriate. It is fitting. To illustrate it, perhaps we might consider that a young man or a young woman reaches an age of adulthood and at the age of adulthood begins to start out in life in their own. Well, God does not simply assign time to events, but from God's point of view, there is a rightness, there is a fitness, an appropriateness for times and seasons. There is an appropriateness for the life that God has created that a man or a woman would grow up and at some point leave mother and father and start out in life on their own. But how can we comprehend God's choices? How he saw the good or the beauty of the times and seasons that he's assigned? Well, the preacher tells us that God has set eternity in our hearts. He has given us a sense of duration. He has given us a sense of past and future. We do have an understanding that there is a time for all of these things. And yet, it is beyond us to know what God has done from beginning to end. We can see all of life from creation to judgment day. God can see all of creation to judgment day. He knows how it's all moving. He knows how it will work out, how it all fits in eternity. He sees the end from the beginning. But it remains beyond us to see time and eternity as God does. As another writer put it, we have some sense of the eternal, but we are trapped in time. And we live in the tension of the two, the sense of eternity and the sense of times and seasons. So does that make life pointless? Does it rob life of value? Look again at verse 12 and 13. No, the preacher will not allow us to slip into such despair and skepticism. He knows that there is value in life. Even in life that moves through the set times, even in life that's lived under the sun, which is the writer of Ecclesiastes' way of referring to earthly life that ends in death. First, he says, there's nothing better for men than to be joyful, to find joy in their life. And there's nothing better for men than for people than 
to do good, to spend a lifetime of doing good. There is service and there is help to be rendered to others. And there is joy in that. And it is a gift from God. There is a joy in it. And we can take joy in it and in the life that God has given. The same can be said about food and drink. Food and drink are gifts from God. And God intends us to enjoy them. God intends us to be satisfied in them. It is within God's will. It is within God's purpose to, to be, for us to sit down and enjoy a meal, to find pleasure in the food and the drink and in the company that we share it with. We have work to do. There is labor for our hands daily, whether it is labor at a desk or at a machine, whether it's labor in the soil or labor at a computer. And there's satisfaction to be found in that work, in that labor. When nobody pats us on the back and nobody says thanks, when nobody tells us that we've done a good job, when no one notices or seems to care one way or another, the preacher of Ecclesiastes tells us that we can still be satisfied, that we can still find pleasure in what we do. And perhaps the reason that we can is that that satisfaction is God's gift to us, one that we can appreciate and enjoy. So at the end of this, verse 14 and 15, the preacher comes to the main theme of once again. The lives of men and women pass through times and seasons set by God. We have a sense of the eternal, but God's doings are beyond our understanding. But then he tells us that what God does endures forever. What God does is permanent. It doesn't change. His work is everlasting, and what he does is not in vain. It is not useless. He doesn't make mistakes. And one way to see that is in the repetition of events. Past and present are always before God. There is nothing new under the sun, as Ecclesiastes says more than once. And always, always, God is sovereign. God is king. So the preacher tells us that there is a divine purpose to all of these things. And that purpose is so that people will revere God and honor him. In these words, God comes so close to us. He orders the times and the seasons of our lives. He gives us gifts with which to enjoy our existence. He even gives us a vision of eternity, although it is one through a mirror darkly. But at the same time, he is so far above us. He is so much more than we are, so far beyond our ability to comprehend. He is our sovereign God, and we are his wee small creatures. And the right response on our part to him is to revere him and to honor him, to be in awe of him. The right response from us to God is to humble ourselves before him and to give him adoration and praise. And this gives meaning to our lives, to the times and seasons of our lives. As I said at the beginning, this is only one vision of God. It's only one way that God has revealed himself. And as we read it and contemplate it, we do so with an awareness, again, that this God is both near and far. But he cares about us. Twice the New Testament encourages us to cast our cares on him because he cares for us. 
Not only has He ordered the times and the seasons of life, but He has redeemed us. He has redeemed us for Himself. And it's striking how the concept of time fits in with what the New Testament teaches about redemption. Paul says in Romans 5 and verse 6, you see, at just the right time, at the right time, did you notice that? While we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. In Galatians 4 and verse 4 and 5, but when the time had fully come, when the time had fully come, God sent His Son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And again, we want to affirm that at a time known only to Himself, according to Mark 13, God will again send His Son forth to gather all of His children home to spend eternity with Him. No doubt you've heard the story of a Sunday school class of five- and six-year-olds. The children had been given paper and crayons, and they were told that they could draw anything they wanted. Just anything that came to mind that they wanted to draw, they could do that. And so there's one little girl who begins to work, and she is just working furiously. She's really spreading the crayon on the paper. She's working intently on her picture, so much so that the teacher began to get curious about what was she drawing? What was so important? And so she asked the little girl, and the little girl answers, I am drawing a picture of God. And the teacher tried to explain, but no one knows what God looks like. And with confidence that only five-year-olds are capable of, she responds, they will when I'm done. Well, I hope this devotion, this meditation on Ecclesiastes 3 will help your vision of God. But as you contemplate it, as you meditate on it, as you pray over it, that it will bless your vision of God. And that it will inspire your devotion and your faithfulness to the God who is so far above us, but is so near to us. We'll finish now with a song of encouragement. If someone's here tonight and need a prayer, won't you come? Let us know how we can be of service while we stand and sing.